0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's Pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 101 on February 2nd, 2023. Still getting used to that 23 at the end. Thank you for joining us uh, again on the podcast and sorry for off- being off uh, last week. We had a great week in Davos, so do follow us on all social media channels to see some of the videos from the events we had um, at the same time that the world economic forum was happening um, this uh, week we have uh, kush amlani from uh, the uh, from the browser Mozilla he's the global competition and regulatory council at Mozilla Mozilla is the uh, the um, the organization that runs uh, Firefox the browser that many of you will be familiar with and we chatted about the regulatory hurdles uh, the adoption hurdles and also some interesting facts on browser usage by users so you can listen to the entire exchange at the end of this episode also in this episode i'm talking to my colleague zoltan case government affairs manager at the Consumer choice center about what he thinks should be done about the use of tiktok in the european union and also more eu news the farm to fork strategy for agricultural reform seems to be on the brink of collapse so let's get started Let's start with this uh, topic. Farm to flop is what Politico writes. Uh, political risks chokes EU's green food plan. Uh, this has been uh, sort of on the on the brink of happening quite a bit already. With uh, French President Emmanuel Macron having said that the farm to fork strategy might be a bit premature, and uh, politicians in the European Parliament criticizing that the agricultural reform strategy did not get an impact assessment, so did not really explain what the impact of the policy would be uh, past COVID-19 and also past Ukraine war. Uh, The Ukraine war, of course, having big impacts on the European Union's food systems, As you know, there is a Black Sea grain deal to try and get grain all around the world, including to Europe. At the United Nations Security Council today, the U.S. accused Russia of using food as a weapon in its war against Ukraine, and, in turn, creating a global food security crisis. Ukraine grows enough food to feed 400 million people. And Ukraine and Russia together account for one-third of the world's wheat exports but Russia's invasion and its blockade of Ukrainian ports are preventing Ukraine from exporting its grain and steel and uh, and of course non-gmo feed also a lot of that comes from uh, Ukraine with uh, with the EU scrambling for alternatives to import and talking about strategic autonomy but however uh, strategic autonomy is difficult to achieve when you are uh, in in the process of trying to reduce farmland and reducing the synthetic methods of crop protection but also fertilizing uh, your soil and politico writes here in a specific very uh, loaded email uh, article that they're sending out and they say um, that that proposed with fanfare by the eu executive on may 2020 the farm to Fork strategy is a major plank of the european green deal which lays out plans to make farming more environmentally friendly and diets healthier by the end of the decade be it by slashing the use of agrochemicals or nudging consumers toward more sustainable choices at the supermarket. I would put an asterisk there on the sustainable choices because, well, what we've talked about before on the, on the, on the, on the podcast, we need to evaluate sort of the um, agroecological solutions to farming based on their biodiversity um, claims. If we use more land um, to make the same amount of food, that's not good for biodiversity. That means we're cutting down more forestry, more trees. Something I discussed with my colleague David Clement from Consumer Choice Radio on their program uh, just this week is that what we want to do is be more efficient. And uh, the question is, how do we reach more efficiency so that we can have more biodiversity so that we can be more sustainable in our food systems? And uh, it seems that uh, uh, some are not uh, very happy by the farm-to-fork strategy, um, delayed or entirely blocked by political battles among farmers, EU officials, and national diplomats. A lot of people um, not happy uh, with the farm-to-fork strategy, Red meat and wine is also one of the on the chopping block. Uh, the, 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 other, the other part is, of course, the livestock conversation that happens over nitrous oxide emissions in the Netherlands with farmers being um, up in arms about the, the proposed solutions of buying farmers out and then saying, uh, essentially, you should stop livestock farming because we have too many emissions. Of course, that is not a good solution. We can't just buy farmers out of their own profession and then say, uh, now we've done so much for carbon dioxide emissions or nitrous oxide emissions reduction, um, because that is not a sustainable solution. We can't just phase out farming altogether and then claim we've done so much. We need to find smart systems uh, to make farming more sustainable, as opposed to sort of taking an abstinence type of uh, uh, position on on farming so we've criticized the farm to fork strategy because of the lack of a coherent impact assessment we've laid out why the usda Um, uh, impact assessment is quite uh, quite damning and we should really take a look at that we had we had webinars with agricultural experts and members of the European Parliament including the chairman of the agricultural committee in the European Parliament where we discussed many of those issues with different experts and trying to lay out what exactly is needed and what is needed is more technological innovation in plant breeding but also in sort of the hardware uh, that, that farmers need. Uh, when you look at the use of smart sprayers, where there's a specific amount of pesticides that you might need for your, for your fields that you can use, uh, or whether it is the use of drones, which is also very cool uh, to be able to use technology to the fullest. Farming has changed quite significantly when just uh, 50 years ago uh, it would have been a very rudimentary approach to farming now your farmer uses as many or even more computers on a daily basis than than you do Uh, even if you work your classic office job uh, with uh, with multiple devices uh, they are using uh, significantly uh, more advanced integrated systems to use fewer resources but also to get the highest output so it's putting the trust in farmers to be able to manage all of the concerns that we might have on the environmental scale and uh, and listen to them next up we have government affairs manager zoltan case at the consumer choice center telling us more about his thoughts on tiktok Sultan, what's the big deal? It's just dance videos, right?
1: Well, basically, the big deal is uh, is basically not necessarily the content uh, TikTok has, although I have problems, personal problems with that as well. I don't watch that. However, the problem is security and surveillance because, you know, when we talk about uh, liberal democracies and free speech, we also have to think of something else now in the 21st century, and that is being free from surveillance. My problem with TikTok is that there is... Well, how to say that the meddling of the uh, Chinese Communist Party in the ownership? If I want to be nice with that, and uh, and also, uh, in my opinion, as as long as your data is not secure and it can end up in the hands of uh, the Communist Party of China, which is very notorious for human rights abuses, then then that's why I'm worried. And and you know, when 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 we come to solutions, we have to we have to look at what solutions uh there have been worldwide or what practice best practices there have been and well i can point at the american uh example of uh, banning tiktok from federal uh uh phones equipment laptops and so on and so forth also there is now some kind of a move in canada doing the same thing and and in my opinion uh Kind of like copying that, having the same kind of legislature in, in on, on the European Union level, all the member states level can be can be a first step.
0: When you published a press release on the issue, um, it got picked up quite a bit in Hungary, even uh, English-speaking Hungarian news titles. Will TikTok be banned in the EU and Hungary? Uh, That is daily news Hungary. And uh, uh, quite a few media outlets in Hungary being quite interested, not just because it's you, but because the issue also seems to strike a nerve. Why do you think that is? Have some people only now woken up to the realities that TikTok might represent?
1: Well, it's not necessarily that. Uh, the, the other issue why, why Hungary is kind of uh, in the center of attention when it comes to Chinese and also Russian uh, affairs is, is is the fact that the Hungarian government is very friendly with the Chinese government, let's put it this way. And, and for China, Hungary is the entry point to the European Union. And it's not only TikTok. There are other security issues that we are concerned in Hungary. Right now, the big thing is the uh, establishment, the building of a, a huge battery plant, Chinese battery plant in, in, in Hungary, which is also posing some security uh, questions since it's, again, uh, politics that is meddling with it. So I personally, I don't have problems with Chinese private companies. I have problems when the government interferes in these companies. And also when we talk about Hungary being the entry point, in the past uh, eight, ten years, we have seen several examples of of Chinese influence in Hungary. The building of the Belgrade-Budapest railway line, for example, which is surrounded by a 30-year secrecy uh, uh, by the Hungarian government. Also, Fudan University is a good example which they want to establish in Budapest. This part, uh, this, this, this battery plant as well. The Huawei 5G networks. So all these uh, in my opinion, cause security concerns. And, and you know, when you look at the whole story in a geopolitical and geostrategic way, uh, you know, you don't have to go too far to understand why Hungary is very important for for China.
0: That absolutely makes sense. Uh, what has been interesting to me is that when uh, Twitter uh, uh, took the change of CEO and also with Facebook's releva- uh, revelations in the past, uh EU institutions were always very keen to do uh, to do uh, parliamentary hearings and meet the officials uh, from those uh, uh, American companies. And now they're meeting with TikTok. What do you sense
1: um, What well,
0: are they talking about? And what should they be well,
1: talking about? That's an interesting about? thing when I, when I see that uh, European decision makers are talking with TikTok, talking with representatives of, of TikTok, because in my opinion, they should be talking to us uh, instead of TikTok. Because uh, in my opinion... Uh, TikTok is investing and has invested loads of money for lobbying, and I think they are very strong, especially when you look at like who's representing them in different countries and on the EU level. Uh, in my opinion, uh, there is no zero tolerance for TikTok. I mean, there is no uh, there is no solution which includes the CCC. Uh, CCP sorry the CCP on, on one side of the equation they have to be out if it's a private company I'm okay with that if there is any kind of political meddling I'm not okay with that I mean I, I want to be as I mentioned free from surveillance that's
0: that's it period strong words as what we all like Sultan Kiss, thank you so much for your assessment
1: thank you very much Bill
0: and last but not least, we have Kush Amlani, Global Competition and Regulatory Council at Mozilla, telling us more about what Mozilla found out about browsers. How do people use browsers? Who installs a browser um, uh, if it's not already pre-installed on any device? And that's a whole conversation of its own. Um, what is the aspect of privacy for consumers, for users online? Uh, why are browsers actually so important? So listening to the conversation we had on that topic. All right, so Kush, what we're trying to find out today is... Um, the importance of browsers altogether. I think a lot of consumers that are listening to the podcast right now don't necessarily have strong feelings about browsers. They just click it to open the internet. I remember my mother at one point, the, um, uh, the, the all-aged uh, uh, thing where she thought uh, she deleted the internet because she back then deleted Internet Explorer. It's, it's, the, it's the classic. So first off, to get us started, um, why are browsers important? Why do they matter?
2: Yeah, it's a really, really good question and something that people don't sometimes think about. But the browser is, is your agent as you're accessing the Internet and it's almost the vehicle that you use to go through. So you might not think about the browser that you're using when you browse, you know, to go shopping or on social media, whatever it is, or for work as well. But actually, it's the, the very vehicle that you're using and everything that you do happens through the browser. Um, and a lot of people don't realize, but browsers actually are powered by this thing called a browser engine. And that determines all sorts of things like the speed you know the performance the security the safety the privacy and all those things are controlled by which browser you use so i say that's why browsers are really important but not necessarily noticed
0: that is absolutely true and it's what is um what was interesting to me is that i was always at the forefront of trying to use different browsers you know, i was i was trying to use oh let's see how opera works and uh, maybe mozilla is the is the alternative for me i was always trying to diversify um But that is not actually how most people seem to use their browser. So you at Mozilla, you did some research on this and you were trying to find out how people approach the issue of browsers. Um, What did you find?
2: Yeah, so we've been around for a long time. Mozilla's been around since 2004 and before that Netscape was around in the 90s and it was the first kind of popular browser. So we've seen this market for a long time and, and how it plays out. And with that perspective, you know, we had this idea that consumers have more choice than ever in theory, but in reality, they're not necessarily free to select the choice that they would like or they would even be aware of. And what we wanted to do was kind of look at that and look at what the operating systems um, do to control uh, their own platforms and you know, what browsers and independent software companies like Mozilla, where we don't have our own operating system, we rely on them to reach our browsers, to reach our consumers. Um, and so what does it mean for consumers to be able to choose and so we wanted to do a bit of research into that. And actually the Australian competition regulator did some re- consumer research on how people interact with their browsers. And so uh, they asked questions like, you know, do people think they have choice and do they actually exercise that choice? And do they know how to download browsers? And do they know how to do they, to change their settings? And do they actually do so? And what we wanted to do was dig into that study in more detail. So we expanded out um, that that research and did it in, in five other countries in the US and the UK and France, Kenya and India as well to give a more beyond the transatlantic region you know, think kind of a bit more globally um, and what we found was that browsers are really important in the sense that people use them every single day and many people use them you know lots of times a day probably more often than you even realize as we were just discussing um, but actually over you know over a third of people in the US in the UK and in France um, reported that they they didn't think they had a wide choice of browsers and actually in France you know less than half people Knew how to change the default browser on their phone and then an even smaller proportion of people actually then go ahead and change the default setting um, and so you know we wanted to, to to kind of dig into that a little bit more and find out you know what what is it about this and um some people you know said that they needed help and they're less likely to change their default because they don't necessarily know how to do so um, and age and comfort also affect this sort of behavior you know um in all five countries someone who was 60 was half as likely as someone who's 30 to change their default and know how to do so on their, on their you know, or to download another browser. Um, and the other the other angle we explored was also privacy as well, and was understanding, you know, do people people care about privacy? And they seem to, a lot of people express concerns about privacy, but we noticed there wasn't necessarily a correlation with that action. They didn't necessarily then act to protect their own privacy, which is interesting because, you know, is is that quite because they're not able to, or because they don't know how to, um, or do they actually not care as much as they think? It, it's it's a really interesting question, um, and there may be all sorts of reasons for all of this lack of choice. But that's some of the kind of the first half of the research that we did, which is all about consumer interaction with
0: browsers. So a lot of this seems to be about convenience. Huh? Something is pre-installed um, on my on my device, and therefore I will continue to to use it. Um. Also, because some of the, some of the pre-installed browsers, uh, we can we can name Safari, also have a certain reputation. Consumers believe that uh, users, consumers, users, we can use whatever term here, um, believe that um, um, th- there's there's a set of safety um, that comes with with this type of browser. I can imagine this makes it hard for you to get a foot in the doors. So. Do you believe that there's gatekeeping happening here? That there's unfair competition with the fact that pre-installed browsers essentially make it hard for you um, to get um, to get market access?
2: Yeah, I think what I mean, f- from a consumer point of view, what people use is what's often what's easy, uh, and it's often not easy to go and select other browsers. And I think that's that's really key that um, you know that you have a pre-installed browser, and it's not easy to necessarily switch. Uh, And that's what we find, that people don't necessarily know how to do so. And that's kind of the level playing field that we would like. We would like it to be easy to be able to switch your browser and to be able to choose, you know, what software you want to use, how you want to decide, you know, do I want to choose privacy protection or do I want to choose a different feature from a browser and kind of understand the importance of that. Unfortunately, what we find today in the market is that not only is there this, you know, this idea of of, of pre-installation, um, of of a browser from the operating system, but there's also a series of tactics that take place that stop consumers being able to switch. So you know it might be very hard to find your settings, or uh, you might receive a message that says, oh, "Are you sure you want to choose a different browser? You know you, you've got the best browser; it's the it's the default. Um, or even worse, you might be switched back to the default when you've already switched away. Um, and we find that sometimes as well that in your settings, when you finish, you know. Um, loading your computer and you finish updating your computer in the settings, at the end you might click finish and it will switch your browser back. Having you know, having gone through all the barriers to switch your browser, you'll then uh, switch back to the operating system default. And so all of these things you know, serve to undermine consumer choice. And what we want ultimately is so consumers to be free to, be able to choose a software that works for them. That's kind of part of what Mozilla is our vision for the internet in general?
0: That really speaks to my heart because it's something that on my devices I've been I've been uh, dealing with that it's, it still switches me back for some reason. Um, just to follow up on that note, though, what do you think the solution is here? Do, do you think it's unfair to the extent that there should be no pre-installations whatsoever? And what would that mean for the for the user experience? Because let's say, for instance, I get a new phone and there's no pre-installed browser. Um, I, should should that should that be the level playing field should six different browsers be already pre-installed what what do you think what do you think is the is the solution here do you have a position on this?
2: Yeah it's an excellent question because what's most convenient for the user is really tricky because some users are quite sophisticated and would be able to choose between switch and six and switch quite easily but other people would need a browser pre-installed potentially um to be able to then to the use the internet and wouldn't know how necessarily to go about it. that's what some of our research also shows. So then um, I think what's important is that actually the consumers are, are easily able to switch away. So there they may be a pre-installed browser, but the consumers ha- don't have the barriers to be able to then choose other browsers. I think that's that's really, really key for us. And, and also, you know, that some of the, um, Uh, the the other browsers are able to compete effectively on the operating system so they have access to the same functionality as the as the browser of the operating system does um so that you know they can compete on a truly level playing field so it's not just the fact that consumers can choose you but it's the fact that you can make your browser as good as possible um, because you're relying on the operating system to provide you certain systems and, and certain um Uh, functionality to be able to to compete right fair enough so
0: now I'm going to give you the opportunity to engage in shameless self-promotion by telling me why consumers why users should use Mozilla over other browsers you mentioned the aspect of privacy I believe that is also um, one of the key talking points that, that your company tries to engage on so
2: why from a privacy perspective is Mozilla a better browser well, one of the key things about mozilla is our philosophy so uh, you may not know this but mozilla is owned by a non-profit foundation and it's i think it's the only major browser developer that isn't driven by shareholders and profits we're actually driven by 10 principles we have for the internet which include you know one of them is that security and privacy is fundamental and must not be treated as optional and so that's a really really key thing that drives us and so we never. So that, that trade-off doesn't really happen at Mozilla in the way it does at other companies and, and then on top of that you know Mozilla's been around for all and Firefox and has been around for a really really long time um, and what that means is that you know we have some really really good technology um, and we're always introducing new technology as well to, to protect privacy you know for example this um, this well, just last year we uh, made total cookie protection um, a, a default in Firefox what that means is that each site that you access, um, only you can only access the cookies of that particular site, and they can't track across to cookies from other sites. And so they're blocked. And there are things like enhanced tracking protection as well, which stop um, other trackers from being seen. And, and when you download Firefox and you click on and there's a shield next to the address bar, and you click on that, and it will show you the number of um, trackers that have been been blocked. And so you can really see that impact, um, and you can see how you're being protected. Which which to me seems like a, a really really good um, a really really good feature. But there are also plenty of Things about usability as well we try and make sure that the browser is as usable as possible because what you could do in theory is block absolutely everything but then a lot of sites wouldn't work and so what you need to do is find that balance where you're protecting users and ensuring their security but also that the browser works and is usable as well and i think firefox does a really really good job of, of of you know treading that path and ensuring that it's a really good consumer experience, but people are protected and they're safe, and they know that Mozilla's values align with their own.
0: So recently I saw one of these graphics that compared different browsers and the features and the privacy features that some of them have. Um, unfortunately, because I'm not in IT, I didn't really understand about half of it. So if to just um, uh, explain this in an understandable fashion, if you maybe have an example that you'd give um, additional risks between me using one of the more—I mean, it's—it's it's hard to say with Mozilla because Mozilla has been around for so long that it's hard to say mainstream, uh, because you are as mainstream as uh, as 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 many other browsers. But I say, let's compared to a pre-installed on my device kind of browser, what additional risks would I run with those that I wouldn't have with Mozilla?
2: Well, some uh, well, you know, some major browsers, uh, and one in particular doesn't um, uh, still allows third-party cookies, so they still allow these third-party cookies to track you as you go through the internet. Firefox doesn't do that, and Firefox ensures that, that these things are, are blocked by default. Um, and so I think that's a, r- a really, really key thing because it means that your privacy is is more preserved um, as a result compared to compared to other browsers. Right. Um, so now that
0: uh, we've we've, we've covered we've covered some of that. Um, how do you see the future? I always I always like to ask the guests uh, about the, the the optimism and pessimism for the for the future that they might have. Uh, you seem to be very proactive in um, in in um, explaining why privacy matters, why browsers are important. Uh, your research also does find that there's some resistance. Do you think that with age that uh, gen z millennial consumers which is actually also the group that we're trying to target in our in our work the most that those are the consumers that will care Mm -hmm. about this the most and therefore it's just a matter of time that uh, you'll end up on top
2: yeah it's a good question i think people in general are are more concerned about their privacy and they are more much more aware now of what happens to their data and how it's processed and things like data brokers for example um and you know i think that thing that sort of thing would have been known by an average person you know five years ago or, or even two years ago maybe and so people's awareness of of their privacy online and also then the real world impact of that on them is, is definitely more understood now and as a result people are seeking out privacy preserving Um, products as well and they look for that in their in their features in the same way people might look for you know kind of environmentally friendly things as well um more and more they're sort of much more discerning in what they choose and, and hopefully that will continue in the case of browsers but at mozilla we also have other privacy preserving products as well like you know we have a vpn and we have this thing called firefox relay where it masks your email so when you're being asked to give your email address for a service that you need you don't give your actual email you you know Mozilla provides you with a uh, with, an, with an with an alias that you can use which means that if if there's a leak for example then you, it's not your email which is leaked it's the alias and so your data is protected then and there are all sorts of different innovations that, that we can do so and we want to keep innovating and, and trying to to ensure that we you know preserve people's privacy and and keep meeting this increasing demand for for more privacy-preserving
0: products. Excellent. So where can people find out more outside of using uh, Firefox as their browser to find out more about the work that you've done, some of this research? um, Where is it all? Where is it all online? What can we link to?
2: Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking. I mean, Mozilla.org is the is the best place to go, and you can download Firefox there. You can also find out about some of our advocacy work that we do, to, you know, to improve the health of the internet uh, in general, and um, and also then all of our products are there, the other products as well. So there's plenty of information and and further guidance there. And we're also on on Twitter um, and all the other social media as well. Well,
0: thank you so much, Kush Lani, for joining us on the Consumer Podcast.
2: Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me.
0: And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be linking to the article uh, by Zoltan Case on TikTok and also uh, the study by Mozilla on browsers in the description of this audio um, file, which you can find on your podcast players. Please recommend this podcast to uh, different friends and family who might be interested in listening in and follow us on all the social media channels. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, and I'll see you Thursday.